so I reiterate here, the bill is dead. The story of this great city is about the years before this night. Welcome to a new episode of Ho Ho Hong Kong. We're sitting here on a beautiful day. You don't know that, but I am here. Mohammed Magdi. I'm sitting with my buddy. Vivek Mabubani, still at Funny Vivek, letter M. Oh boy, let's catch up on the drama quick, a little bit. Do, yeah. Did anything happen since last so week? So actually, right before we started recording, he messaged me back saying, I have made you admin. And yeah. I'm like, no, you haven't. That's oh my God. Yeah, so I'm just going to double it. I haven't checked right now in case he's made the admin just like two minutes ago. <laughs> but fingers crossed, the next episode, I'm Funny Vivek. So until then, how do people find you? So on Facebook, at Funny Vivek with the letter M. Everywhere else, just Funny Vivek is good enough. Nice. And yeah, I am at the other Mohammed on Instagram. I've been posting a lot of goofy stuff and because my life is kind of empty at the moment <laughs> so just like if you want to follow me and see absolutely useless posts yeah that's that's uh, the other Muhammad. that's a good thing i mean like for myself actually i've been getting a lot of messages from friends and family because i have my show on the 21st of december in ocean park oh right? yeah right and so everybody is like dude that poster is amazing by oh, the way thank you very much yeah. I, i'm glad you like it so i have my show at ocean park and everyone's first question is can we go on the rides before your show <laughs> and i'm like oh what yeah yeah did you not tell them that the open acts to the dolphin show yeah exactly yeah, yeah. They, and i guess second most common question is are you doing it where the dolphins perform yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm like i give up man just just go to show.funnyvivac.com you'll figure out all the information i mean one there. show has a lot of hair and the other has none yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of water and i can't <laughs> and i don't want to swim oh, man i i did go because i'm cheap i went like do you know how they give like a, a free birthday ticket oh yeah, yeah so yeah. last year i also have a fake birthday on my id and my passport it's nice. not the real one uh, so i guess you, you can't get in the bars because you're not 18 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you fake your no, no, because I come from a corrupt place where you can just do whatever you want. Nice. So I was born on the 3rd of October. And when my dad, when I was born, my dad figured out that if I register 3rd of October, I'll miss one year of school. Ah. So he put me three da- days earlier. I'm on 30th of September. That's my, any official record says 30th of September. So this is you with an extra year of school. Yeah, this is, exactly. This is what you turned out to be. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, screw you. <laughs> anyway, all right. You know, end up with the So education. on 30th of September, yeah. I went to Ocean Park by myself like yeah. an idiot. And uh, that dolphin show was pretty depressing. Yeah. I would never go back there I again. can imagine. And I would say to your family, don't go. Don't support that. Yeah. Yeah, it's sad. I've been there when I was a young kid. But yeah, I haven't been to Ocean Park in a long time. The only time I've been to it was to visit the venue. Right. To the room, yeah. a bit. Anyway, yeah, we'll see. Twenty first December. I who knows? I might have to end up working at a dolphin show <laughs> if I can't sell tickets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's get to our guest today. It's very exciting. This was a special request from me. I've been looking for a while for basically the top psychotherapist in Hong Kong, and a bunch of people recommended the same name. And uh, I have him today here, uh, Tim Hoffman. How are you doing, man? Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, I, you got recommended. Like I asked, like our networks and our fans and stuff to to recommend uh, psychotherapists and therapists in Hong Kong, and a couple of na- got names got thrown around, but your name got, was the most votes. Wow, I pay a lot of people well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so nice. much for Google AdWords. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, SEOs. Do you know the guy we had last week, Evan Long? Apparently, he's like, oh, well, yeah. He's a search I, engine optimizer. I was just talking to, talking to Tim about search engine optimization yeah. before as well. As an example. But yeah, so you've apparently optimized your social engine, making sure everybody says good things about you. So congratulations on that. Thank you. You made it to uh, the top uh, the first podcast page. on Kane Road. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. yeah. <laughs> All right, let's uh, get into it. Yeah, uh, 
Tim, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. So you are a psychotherapist here in Hong Kong, and you have been here for about 22 years? Or nope. you have been here for a long time, but you have been in your industry for 22 years. Is that I've correct? No, nope, neither. I've been here All right, for then your website yes. uh, needs yeah. updating. Clearly, no, SEO no, no, bad. No. <laughs> I've been here for 61 years. Oh, my Ooh. God. Right. Born and raised in Hong Kong, and wow. I've been a therapist for four and a half years. Okay. Huh. Okay. So wait, what is the 22 years on your on your uh, bio? That was when I was working at a in the corporate world. Damn. Ah. Okay. So you just did a massive career shift at massive some point when you were uh, like I guess in your 50s. I would That's say. That's right. 55. Wow. Okay. So this is a weird place to start, but why what made you just do a career shift at this point? Well, um, I was in a great job. I really enjoyed it for 20 years and then I found myself um, on Sundays my chest would hurt starting mm. around lunchtime. Um, so Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday was fine, but Sundays I just found myself feeling empty. Mm. And uh, it didn't go away for month after month. And then finally one night, I'm lying in bed on a Sunday night, and not only is my chest hurt, but my stomach hurts. Mm. And I realized that it's not only not going to get better, it's getting worse. And mm. then I thought, I can't live like this for the rest of my life. And then I thought, I don't have to live like this for the rest of my life. And I pulled the ripcord and did what I had always planned to do since I was in my early 20s, which was become a therapist. Wow, okay. So, during that time when you were having chest issues and you know, abdominal <laughs> issues, did you go visit a therapist to see if they could help you with that? <laughs> no, actually I didn't. That's you a good did. point. I've ah. seen a therapist for other things over the years, but this one I just thought, oh, look, it's, you know, everyone goes through ups and downs in their career. They get bored with things. But, and I'd had you know, some, a year or two here and there, months, yeah. when I wasn't as energized by my job as I had been. But yeah. this was just... This what was, was the job? Away. I was a headhunter. I was working for a company called Spencer Stewart, mm. which is one of the top five executive search firms in the world. Mm. And it was an amazing job. Right. I mean, but it's a corporate job, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a traditional corporate job. It's a lot mm. of freedom. It's, um, you know, I mean, I, I found myself, you know, flying business class to Abu Dhabi to interview um, people for jobs in, in Mecca to run hotels and being put up in, in the presidential suite in this hotel. I mean, it was an amazing job. Mm. And I loved it. But then, at a certain point, I stopped loving it. It stopped becoming. It stopped being meaningful. Ah, mm. uh, yeah. I mean, that's happened mm. before. Like, for example, this time last year, I was not doing very well health-wise as well, and mm -hmm. I didn't have chest issues. I had stomach issues. So, like, I just thought I was eating badly. I was looking at the vegetables, like bad vegetables. Right? <laughs> Started eating sugar. That didn't help either. So, I think that was the issue. That you, at some point, you just woke up thinking like I'm doing it. It's the same repetitive motion. I mean, I enjoyed it maybe yesterday, but today somehow the thrill is not there anymore. But you kind of thought, well, this maybe it's just a one day thing, right? Maybe just today's not my day. Maybe tomorrow will be better. But then tomorrow came, then it didn't improve. And right. over time, how long was that period when you found yourself just basically every day waking up like, ah, oh, okay, let's get through this? Ten months. Ten months. Wow. Wow, almost a year. And then when I made the decision to leave, that pain disappeared. Huh. Wow. I actually, when you said you had chest pain, I thought maybe you made too many business trips to Beijing, and that's why <laughs> <laughs> you're getting the black lungs. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, did you just stop going to China? Did you try that? Uh, no, no, I don't think it was anything connected to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you say that. Okay, fine. I will say it. You don't have to confirm. Yeah, I think it's the pollution in the business class of planes. That's oh, what yeah, issue, yeah, yeah. That terrible legroom I've space. I've never had oh. that issue. <laughs> I've never right. had chess pain taking economy, so I'm <laughs> <laughs> just saying. <laughs> but you're saying that when you were younger, you were already interested in therapy, right? Yes. Uh, how, how did that interest begin? begin? It's, the, it's the family business. I've oh. got oh, like seven or eight relatives who are all, in, uh, all therapists. So you were the rebel as in the family? 
family looked at you like you're gonna be a therapist. You're like, no, I will headhunt. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, when you became one, they're like, see. You know, I, I think that's pretty smart because when they're he- he's headhunting, he's putting people in corporate jobs who will eventually need therapy, so they go to his family. I think that's the game. That's that the, was that's the, sneaky. That's the, <laughs> the my 20, secret is exposed. Exactly. <laughs> Twenty years of working at that. Yeah, it took until, like four minutes yeah, to figure him out. Until he he started going, like, wait a second, I'm doing it to myself. Yeah. <laughs> oh <me."> no. <laughs> <laughs> taste, your, taste your own poison. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so then when you talk about the corporate job and moving into what you're doing right now, the transition, I mean, I'm sure you had to talk to people or even have a lot of introspection in yourself and say, like, you know, is this what I want to do? Is it, Where do I want to go? Did, were you clear where you wanted to be after you got the chest pains and some pains and you're like, I think I want to go pursue uh, this that I've always thought of or like the family business was a direction you already had in your mind or yeah. were you still exploring like what, what do I want? What is my life all about? Did you no. have that? I, I always had this as a plan B. Oh, mm. okay, okay, okay. So psychotherapy was always plan B. It's just like until you couldn't head headhunt anymore, right? You're like, I can still see people. Right. I can still, <laughs> you know, I'm still going to talk to them. After that, I'm still going to talk to them but charge them directly. Yeah. Since, <laughs> since it's the family business kind of, during the years, were you also like the friend who is the therapist for all of your friends or like your colleagues? Not really. I mean, mm. you know, I know a lot of therapists get into the into the business because of that. Because, yeah. yeah. They're but, always the friend or the confidant right. or whatever. Yeah. That, mm. That's not been my, my shtick. Mm. But also, okay, this is a very weird question, but you're obviously a white man. Yes. You said you were born here 61 years ago. Is yes. that correct? Right. So your family came here during what? Like how many years ago? That would be in like 1960s. Uh, uh, they were here in 1949. Actually. That's well, amazing. Went to Shanghai in '47. Came down to Hong Kong after the uh, after the revolution. Okay, so what was what was the white family doing in Shanghai and then here? Textiles, a very boring job. Uh, oh, okay, deal. yeah, a lot of yeah, yeah. There's a lot of well. yeah. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. very cool. Everyone just wanted suits, and and apparently we took <laughs> over. Hey, <laughs> oh, and where is your family from? Where is, where are you originally from? Uh, Connecticut and New Jersey. Nice. Okay, so not they really. moved from. Sorry, <laughs> not really. Not really. <laughs> well, to me, well, I'm from a third world country. Yeah, Anything that says U.S. on it is great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there are some people who think that the, that the U.S. is turning into a third world country. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I, we're dragging you guys down. <laughs> so stop, stop, stop taking our people in. Maybe you have a chance. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the the main thing I'm always curious about is because. You had your own personal transition, basically going from your corporate world to what you're doing right now, and also becomes a family business kind of angle. Were your family finally, did they come up to you and go like, ah, finally, Tim, you've understood it? Or were they always supportive of whatever you wanted to do? Well, my family's full of therapists. Of course they're supportive. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> of course they understand. They were happy to have you back in the fold, basically. They were fine with whatever I wanted to do. Yeah, right. Ch- chapter three in, in the in the manual tells you, yeah. you know, let them be happy. They'll come back in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, uh, when, when you decided to take it up as a professional, uh, uh, what, what did you have to study? Like, where did you go? Right, so I went back to the States mm. and did a two-year master's degree. Wow, at 50-something years 55 old. 55 years old. That's yeah. amazing. Is there a lot of people at this part, part, like time of their lives that do something like this, like a massive career shift? I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't done any studies on that. Mm-hmm. But I know that when I woke up in the morning that, that uh, night that I made the decision, I yeah. told my wife, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I want to go to the States and study. And she said, okay, I'm coming with you. Oh, nice. And wow. I burst into tears. That was uh, so supportive. Very supportive yeah. wife. Wow, that is that is very yeah. commendable. She's so supportive. She should be a therapist. Hey, <laughs> taking well, your clients from you, like was he terrible? Come to me. <laughs> That's mean. Yeah. So okay, uh, dumb question. When do you when you need therapy? If you need therapy, do you just read your own books? 
No, <laughs> no, no, not like not like the books that you wrote. But do you read right. your own resources? Is my point, or do you right. also have to see a therapist? No, therapists go and see therapists for sure. Is that is that common? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't done any studies on this, but <laughs> I, I, I know that therapists always often have therapists. But huh. that's, see, now that's the thing. As a comedian, if I went to watch another comedy show, yeah, I'm always in like hyper analytical mode. Like I see what he's doing over there. I see what yeah. she's doing over there. That's a good joke. Yeah, that's a twist. Okay, that's A and B. I get it. Do you have a lot of that then when you? seeing like another therapist and you see how they respond you're like oh i see what you're doing this is from that textbook maybe i mean i've i've not i went and did all my therapy be- before i became a therapist oh. right so in the four years four and a half years that i've been doing this i haven't yet seen a therapist it's a little yeah. awkward in town because you know you're going to run into these people at social events yeah. and so forth so a lot of people i think would do therapy with someone who's outside of hong kong yeah so over the internet something right. like that would be better right because that we mm. it's always awkward that you know i see you in a social event but i also see you in a private event it's like okay we're giving each other the look of like i know but i don't know right do right, you have that so okay so coming back to this now we're comedians mm-hmm. looking at mohammed he has way more issues than myself yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah a lot more <laughs> and this is a running thing because a lot of times people when they think of comedy they always think about that broken kind of soul mm. very often and i remember reading a book by jerry seinfeld and he was kind of upset with that idea and he was always talking about how why it always has to be broken mm. like for example when he was talking about uh at the comedy store the lady i think paulie Shore was her name uh, uh mitzi Shore. mitzi Shore, yeah, yeah. yeah so the idea was that initially when he went there to try out she saw him she's like oh you need to be stamped all over you need yeah. to be broken a bit, otherwise you won't fit into the comedy world. And ever since then, he never went back. And he was like, I'm fine. I don't have to be broken to work in this industry. And But the running idea is always like, you know, you've got some issues, you've got some menta- mental problems, or, you know, some family issues. That's, that's why you're a comedian. Have you found that there are certain professions in the world that seem to always draw in certain mentalities or certain personality types like comedy always has you every time you go to open mic you're like yeah nine out of ten people these guys have issues they need therapy yeah (laughs) it's very common like i would invite you as a show once just to sit and observe not really enjoy the show (laughs) but just sit and observe and just give me like a bit of analysis like okay i can see there is common thread here among these people or maybe maybe we are wrong and you're like oh these are just normal people who took up a hobby right I mean, you know, maybe a lot of therapists, uh, sorry, a lot of uh, uh, comedians need need therapy, but so do a lot of ordinary people. And maybe you guys are just a little bit more open about it. You guys talk about the problems you've got. Mm. Um, I mean, there are there are things I think that happen in in the comedy world that make it particularly difficult to be um, a happy person in in comedy. Mm. You know, for example. Um, it's, it's a very competitive thing, right? Every time you go and watch someone, you're judging them against yourself. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you find yourself on the losing end of that, and that's not a very good feeling. Yeah. You're also on your own, right? You, when you stand up, you don't have any teammates. You know, you're not like part of an accounting firm that's all, you know, we're all in this together and we're yeah. all going to make money for everybody else. No, you live in a very solitary. Yourself. It's a very solitary, very solitary. kind of yeah. life in a way. Right. And your product is yourself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I used to sell computers for IBM many, many years ago, if someone didn't buy my computer, well, they just didn't like my computer. You don't take it personally because it's personally. IBM, it's not you. Right. Yeah. But you guys, you know, oh. if you stand up there and some and you and you die, no one's laughing. Right. That's you. They rejected you personally. That's actually really true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've had I've had times when you have bad shows and you kind of question yourself like, "Oh, you know, have I lost it? Is, yeah. is, is my product defective now?" Right. It's right. An issue. Oh, okay, yeah. That's I think yeah, true. a common thread among like the really really successful comedians that I look up to anyway is that they manage to separate their act from their person. Mm-hmm. And even if their act is very personal, it's like it's still a product that they made. It's like if I make you soup and you don't like it, it doesn't mean that I suck as a person, just the soup sucks, right? 
Um, but he's right. Like, is there any other industries in your experience that you can also see like the mental issues or like needing therapy is more common than other industries? Well, you know, traditionally people who are creative, uh, mm. you know, arti artistic people tend to be that that's the stereotype. I'm not sure I've ever seen any studies that say that that's absolutely true. Mm. But, you know, you look at, at the, um, you know, the design industry between 2010, and 2018, three famous designers killed themselves. You know, mm. Kate Spade, Alexander McQueen and uh, Loren Scott. Mm. So that's pretty intense. You know, part of it maybe is also because you, you're you're in the public eye, right? Mm. You know, especially if you're very successful, you're out there, and people are are um, uh, every, every part of your life is exposed. Mm. And so anything that happens, you know, you break up with a girlfriend or a boyfriend, man, everybody knows about it. Yeah, yeah there's no like tough. me time. There's no like leave me alone. I don't want to discuss it. The press is over you, trying to get every little detail out of that. Right. I think that's the other thing I find is that. The creative world, one aspect as in also you come to a dead end of like, I got to be better than my last creation. And that is an issue even I face a lot where like, okay, you have a really good set. You have a really good new bit. You know, you write that, you do the show. You're like, that's great. Now the next show, you're like, how can I top that? And I think that's the biggest pressure a lot of creators face when people expect, oh, you can top that. Your, your thing was better last time. And you're going to go, wait, have I, have I lost it? I mean, I can't seem to be improving. So would you find that it's anybody who's constantly in the basically expected to get better and better, the growth syndrome? Because what I find is that when I read a lot of books talking about basically burning out and stuff like that, mm -hmm. it's usually the people who are trying to impress or give care to other people that are the ones who are most doubtful of themselves or have issues because they're so busy trying to make sure everybody else is okay mm -hmm. that they forget to take care of themselves. So even with comedies, like you're so busy trying to make sure that you know the audience is entertained, you forgot to maybe enjoy it on stage or you forgot after the show, like, hey, I got to still go enjoy myself as well. You know, you're just like, oh, it's a bad show. I'm over it. Done. I'm dead. You know, they're not going to appreciate me anymore. I'm useless. I'm rubbish so would you find that that's the issue is that creative the giving out issue it, it could be but i think i'm i'm always a big fan of of um the idea of connection between people yeah and mm. that connection is a way to ensure mental health that the the closer you are to people the happier you're generally going to be and i think that comedians have a, a, an issue with that because of the competitive nature of your mm. of your business mm. that you you can't really open up now you say okay you know comedians are incredibly open they're talking about their depression and everything like that but mm. there's openness and there's openness mm. so you know when you're standing up there and you're saying oh my god i've been so depressed it's all past tense right it's all i was so depressed mm. things were terrible before you're not saying right now i'm depressed i'm feeling like shit Mm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I guess it makes sense because it's hard. If I start my set or even in the middle of it and I was doing really well and I'm like, I feel like shit right now. Now it's just sad. The audience did not pay tickets exactly. to see my therapy on stage. Right. They don't right? want to see you cry, right? No. Right. So yeah. you talk about past tense, mm -hmm. you know, what, what happened in the past. The, the a different level of, you know, better level of... of um, uh, of openness is to say, okay, these are the negative feelings that I'm having right now to mm. say, okay, I'm really depressed. But even that is all, is not completely open. If you then show the person, mm. this is how depressed I am. You're crying in front of someone. That's another level of openness and vulnerability. Mm. And the final one, in my opinion, is to actually tell the other person what they're doing to you that's making you feel this way. Yeah, they're so, not laughing. That's why, <laughs> right. that's why I'm crying on stage. <laughs> yeah. That's not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. So that's <laughs> you guys are together. ruining my life. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a pretty good excuse. Yeah, exactly. I'm bombing because you're not laughing. Yeah. <laughs> not because my jokes are terrible. Because you're not helping me with it. Oh, okay. But okay, that's a very good point because I do find that a lot of times when people talk about their stories, it is always in past tense or I don't, or at least when they're telling me like, oh, no, I'm single right now because nobody loves me. I'm thinking, 
thinking like, oh, he's talking about another day. He's not talking about right now. Mm. And I don't feel a need to go up and say, oh, really? Hey, you know what? Take a break. You know, here's a hug. I'm like, no, keep entertaining me. I don't care about your life. And I would say that's the issue as well with comedy is that the audience are kind of like, you know, you're like the, like gladiators, you know, fighting and kind of getting mauled all over by the lions. Everyone's just watching on the side and just like, guys, like I'm literally getting my face mauled by this, this lion. You're just still just sitting there going like, come on, mm. defend yourself. Keep going. That's your job here. And so that's what you're trying to say, right? A lot of times the comedian on stage is actually vulnerable, being open, but to a situation that is, that is, dis, that is not located right now in this room. It's mm-hmm. located outside, and therefore nobody feels the need of like, oh, you know what? Maybe we should do something. Right. Oh. Because honestly, as you said, they're, mm-hmm. they're not paying money to, to kind of help you, to no. be nice to you and make you feel better. In fact, they're actually, they might have their own issues, and this is why they're coming to a comedy show. Like, not even to say that, like, people who come to comedy show on average are, like, more depressed than the general public, but there are actually studies from comedians, like, people talk, like, comedians have done done it all over the years, they talk about how when they go to certain cities, like Miami, for example, that is a party town, people go out and they have fun all the time. They're like, the comedy audiences there suck because they don't need comedy. They're having fun outside. When you go to New York, it's a sad city in a lot of ways. There is crime, there is blah, blah, blah. There is bad weather and stuff like that. People love comedy there. That's interesting. I, I'd never thought about that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are comedians, I, like if you like someone like Bill Burr, uh, like uh, a lot of comedians like Richard Pryor all over the years, they talk about like the, in the US, there are cities that are in general happy and have better weather. And people there just don't care for comedy as much as like the cold, sad cities. Hmm. Oddly enough, I mean, because like when I traveled for the first time doing comedy, I went to Singapore mm. and I was mind blown at like how crazy they were willing to laugh. I thought all oh, Singaporeans are probably going to sit there like, <laughs> yeah, but they were like, like anything that is, let's say, level C in Hong Kong was yeah. like level A in Singapore. Oh my goodness. Maybe they're deprived of comedy down Maybe, there. Maybe, yeah, they're deprived of any entertainment. But that's, that's my point. Are they deprived of comedy or is the, do they want someone to give them a release of some sort and comedy can be like the very accessible thing to do that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not one of these psychotherapists who thinks like let's diagnose everything and, yeah. and find the pathology in everybody and why yeah. are you doing this and why are you doing that. Eh, mm. You know, life is hard enough without people telling you that that you're doing something wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, the the, the message here is not blame the audience. <laughs> We're grateful. <laughs> you enough. like to, I'm sure. I would yeah. love they to. Don't oh, laugh yeah, at yeah. You. <laughs> we blame the audience after the show. <laughs> after the show. Yeah. After the show. Which is actually a bad habit, which gets me to my next point. So also, one of my jobs is I'm a booker, which means that I book and run the shows. Uh, and I do it like you do it sometimes, but I do it on a weekly basis for the last maybe six or seven years. I've been doing that job beside performing on stage. And one of the main issues, if I have to pick one issue among the com- hundreds of comedians that I worked with, especially on like the starting and mid-level, is the lack of self-awareness, which is quite fascinating to me. And it's one of the main reasons I want to talk to you, because there are a lot of people over the years especially open mic. So just to walk you through the hierarchy of like, how do you start comedy? Most of the time you start at open mic level. So you're nobody, you're just a random person. You sign up for open mic, you try it five minutes and you build a, your act like that. Now, the problem that I have is that I get approached by people who are in nowhere close to, like they've seen someone like Vivek go up before them, destroy for five minutes. That's, that's a headline act. They have done it maybe three times. They got maybe one or zero laughs. And they're genuinely, they genuinely believe when they approach me, it's like, so when do I get my headline show? And I always like, in my head, I'm like, Have, were you not there when you were on stage? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. But w- w- because it happened so many times over the years, I started to think these people are disconnected from the reality. Like, 
So do you have do you have an idea like why does this happen? Uh, I'm not sure why that happens with comedians, but I, I know that a lot of us, in order to preserve how we feel about ourselves, mm. we fool ourselves about all kinds of things. You know that uh, therapists are some of the worst. You know, they did a study, uh, asked 270 therapists, "How do you rank yourself against other therapists? Are you mm. above average, below average, top quartile?" Every single one of them ranked themselves as above average, right? And like. 50% of them rank themselves in the top 10 or 20%. Wow. Right? Yeah. So everybody, in order to feel good about yourself, you gotta, you got to fool yourself. I mean, the only people who really have a very clear view of their capabilities um, and, and their positions, you know, how, how they're really coming across to other people, are people who are depressed. Right. right? Mm. They've accepted that that's how they're feeling, and I guess that's how it is supposed to be. Or maybe it's the other way around. They're, they see what they, are, what they really are, and that makes them depressed. Ah. But then to rebuttal what you're saying, as a therapist, I know nothing about therapy, obviously. Uh, I mean, you should come and see me then. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, but I know nothing about it, but I imagine in a, a setting, like if you have a client and you're talking to them or they are talking whatever, sometimes you can fool yourself into thinking that he's feeling better, right? Yes. As opposed to comedy, when the reaction is so immediate and so clear-cut, and this is my point, even if you're an artist who paints, you can fool yourself, oh, people came to my gallery, they must like my painting. Maybe people came to the gallery because the advertising was good, but they did not like the painting. Comedy, I would argue, is the only art form in the world where the, the, the reaction is so immediate and so live and so telling that it's hard to miss. Obviously, it's not hard to miss. But yeah, I'm, but this is the this is the thing that right. is crazy to me. If it's really important to you to think I'm a funny person, yeah, then when people aren't laughing, you kind of hear it that they are, and you believe that they are. They're just so overcome with emotion that they just can't can't laugh out loud, mm. but they're secretly think you're hysterical. I mean, people have the we all have this wonderful ability to to fool ourselves. I mean, you look at sometimes people who are in marriages and their spouse is cheating on them and mm. has been cheating on them for years, and every single person in their social circle knows that that the spouse is cheating and they have managed to convince themselves that it's not true. So you're they're talking about denial. Denial, right. I mean, they're, that, your comedian friends are yeah. in denial. They believe right. that they're funny. So where does that come from? A need to protect how you feel about yourself. Or, you know, in, in the case of the person who's, who doesn't believe that their spouse is cheating, mm. yeah. the cost of believing it, you're going to get divorced, mm. you're going to be humiliated, um, your whole marriage, the 20 yeah. years that you spent married to this person is now going to seem like a sham your world falls apart. I would rather not think about that. I, I'm, I would do go through all kinds of mental gymnastics yeah. to avoid having that happen. Okay, that brings me to a really good uh, point is that I've always wondered, now at some point, obviously on paper, it, being in denial is not good. But if you say it that way, for some people they're thinking, look, I could go through that hassle with the marriage, you know, confronting my spouse and saying what you're doing and all that stuff. Or I can kind of say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. I mean, life is all right. Let me just continue with the way it is. I'll just ignore and pretend it never happened and continue on. He does his thing. I do my thing, whatever it is. Would you say at some situation that the denial actually is even better than confronting the situation? Like, for example, I, I'm assuming for some open micers or whatever that them being in denial and thinking that you know they're funny on stage may mm. even be healthier for their livelihood compared to actually confronting it because maybe they don't have the mental or physical capacity to deal with it would you say there, are there cases like that where you even recommend saying okay you know what if you're keep, fine with keep it. believing what you believe basically right I mean I have clients whose denial is so strong and they the, the alternative is so awful that 
you know, it, I can't break through it even if I wanted to. And yeah. it's probably not a so good do idea. You, and, you, and you do want to break through it, but you just feel like it's almost impossible to get I through it. I don't necessarily want to break through it because, mm. you know, what if it destroys their life? Yeah. Um, you know, frankly, let's, let's be honest. We're all in denial because we're all going to die. Mm. And we're all running around as though what we're doing is mm. really important. Right? Yeah. And in a hundred years, most no of us, one no one's going to know our names. Yes. And, in, and in 500 years, I can guarantee no one knows anything. Okay. Yeah. Now we're getting matter. to the meat of what I want to talk about because there's a Death? few things here to unpack right <laughs> now in the last sentence that you said. From the fact that people, sometimes it's good to leave them in denial. Is mm-hmm. that what you're saying? In just one short statement, for an X number of people, it's good to not even just basically go with, okay, you do your thing. I'm not even going to argue with you. But do you believe that on paper, in theory, sh- should they know that something is should be brought up to them? I mean, it's hard to say, like, you know, that you can always think of, of situations in both sides of that, mm. of that question. So, you know, some situations where you got to say, hey, come on, you know, look, your husband is cheating on you. It's very clear. You got to face this because, you know, he's going to give you an STD and mm. you're going to you're going to die or something yeah. like that. But there are other situations where it's like, oh, come on, you know, just let this person live their life. Who, it's, no, it's none of our businesses to go and tell other people, you know, slap them in the face and say, you're dreaming. But that's, uh. this is maybe where my ideas about therapists are wrong because I can't say, do that even to my best friend because I'm still a friend, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there are, like, I can think like, oh, I really should tell them right now. But at the, same, at the end of the day, it's not my, my place. Mm-hmm. But you as a therapist, they're coming to you for truth, right? Not necessarily. Why are they coming? They're coming to feel better. Not, oh, not for okay. truth. Okay, but right. this is very interesting because you, you, if them feeling better, what you're saying is that if they are feeling better, if them feeling better means that you are co- like letting them live in denial, you have done your job. Yes. Huh. Oh, okay. Why interesting. not? I Fair mean, enough. you know, uh, otherwise I have to tell people, you know, you're going to die. Why are you running around like a like a crazy person thinking that what you do is important? You're going to die. Just. But oh, the, yeah, denial, the denial right. about death and denial about your spouse cheating on you, I think, are very different things. No, but I think what, okay. you, what you're saying is that if you're trying to bring up the truth, then whatever problems you're facing, like, well, you know what? Why should you care? You're going to die in 30 years anyway. So is that what you're saying, right? That if you're going to go all the way hard truth. that Right. I mean, I, I I'm, don't think that there's a, there's a clear line of truth and not truth. And, yeah. But I'm just looking for ways to help people feel better. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, I mean, I'll put it this way. It's like, I, was, I was just thinking when you said, talked about denial, I, what I've noticed actually as well, that this is a really good marketing idea. Like, for example, we have Impossible Burger now, right? <laughs> people in denial, I'm not having a burger. Yeah. I'm helping the world, right? You know, I, I can't believe it's not butter, stuff like that yeah okay but i'm sorry i'm still stuck a little bit on this point because the idea of like i'm i would do whatever it takes to make this person feel better so if i come to you with hypothetically alcoholism mm-hmm. right and I, I just like drinking and i come to you like hey I, I like drinking i feel like i should stop probably but i like drinking and it makes me feel good would you just be like all right keep drinking then well i would say okay what makes you stop what, what makes you want to stop you like it okay that's great but you're saying that you think you should stop why? And then I work with that side of the person mm. to see if we can figure out what's making them want to stop, how they could stop, or at least reduce. Yeah. Uh, but then the person with the cheating spouse also came to you because they kind of need help. Otherwise, they won't come to you. Right. They might need help in some other part of their, of their life. You know, I would test things out. Mm. I, I wouldn't say just like, oh, well, I'm not going to say anything about the fact that clearly their spouse is cheating. Mm. I would say, you know, I might ask, like, how do you feel about this? What's going on in the marriage? Mm. You know, I might even say, is there any possibility that he or she is cheating on you? Mm. Okay, like, but is- if they say, no, 
this guy is completely 100% uh, you know, loyal Clean. to me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's not my job to go beat him over the head with a two by four and say, no, it, look. You're yeah, here's some proof. Like, you're yeah. wrong. Okay. Right, I'm not gonna because like, what, what you're saying to me, it's interesting because, okay, so when we talk about comedy in general, right? A lot of times people take workshops or read a book about comedy. There's always like guidelines. Okay, this is what you should do at this situation is what you do over there. But the more you learn this craft, the more you do it, you realize that it's always gray. You know, and at that moment, you have to make the split decision of like the book said I should be doing this, but this situation doesn't seem right to do this. Therefore, I'm going to do that. And it worked out. I mean, a really good example is that sometimes, you know, the crowd wants you to talk to them. Mm. But like, for example, you know, your next act is all about crowd work. So you as a previous act would be smart to go, okay, I'm not going to talk to the crowd as much as I could feel that they want to talk to me. I'm going to reserve for the next comic who will come up and do a really good job with that. Even though the book is saying, who cares about the next comic? You're just trying to build as many laps as you can. Would you say even in your line of work that there's a lot of the textbook on paper, this situation, if I read it, I'm like, you should have done that. You're like, if you were there, you would see it's a completely different situation because the textbook doesn't really tell you the tone of the, the, the patient. It doesn't tell you the situation they're in. It doesn't tell you the social environment they're coming from. Would you say that there's a lot of that that is causing you to decide whether the denial thing or whether you should be... So, oh, sorry, because like what I'm sensing is that your objective, just like us, is to make the audience enjoy themselves. Okay, mm-hmm. So we're trying to make the audience leave the room in a happier state or better state than they were when they came in, regardless whether I only talked to them yeah. or I did my material. Whatever it takes for that audience tonight. And the only way for me to judge that is not my textbook said, write funny material and do that on stage. I realized that they don't want to hear me talk about material. They want me to just chit chat with them. And mm. so if I did that and they're leaving happy, would you say that that would be a good parallel to what you, what you have to do? Like in this situation, as much as on paper, I got to tell this person the truth mm. that your, your spouse is cheating on you, but she or he is not in the right situation at the moment to confront this reality. And therefore, it's better I keep prolonging the truth or it kind of uh, basically delaying the truth so that they are in a more stable situation. Would you say that is the craft and the art of what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, definitely throw away the textbook. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, psychology textbooks are nonsense yeah. <laughs> as a general rule. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Are you talking about like pop psychology or are you talking about in general, like not self-help books? I, I, well, I would imagine they're bullshit. No, actually, some, some self-help books are really, really good. I mean, mm. I, I do actually uh, ask my clients to read a lot of a lot of stuff because you can when you read a book, you get th- hundreds of ideas, yeah. mm. right? And if I'm in a session, 55 minutes, I can't give those hundreds of ideas to the person. Mm. But they can get them, and maybe there's only one idea in that book that's going to really help them. Mm. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't, it would take too long and, and too much yeah. effort. So, um, yeah, books are, books are really good. Mm. Well, one of the things that we talked about before recording, like over the last couple of weeks, uh, was the idea, like I was sending you a few links about comedians who are using comedy for, as a, like a defense mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, like the, you hear a lot of stories about famous comedians who started doing, not doing comedy, but they started using humor because they were bullied, for example, at school. Mm-hmm. Is that something that, that you find uh, like unique to a certain like comedians for example or is that something that is common among a lot of people who use maybe sharp tongue or, or humor to kind of deflect uh, criticism um is it common i mean i'm sure it it happens I, I i haven't worked with enough comedians to say okay my goodness yes of the 528 comedians i've worked with <laughs> yeah 268 used humor yeah um but it makes it certainly makes sense i mean yeah. you know when you're getting bullied and and you've got a uh, you got a quick tongue you can avoid getting hit right I mean, okay. Let me ask you a very basic question. What do you think? What do you think makes people turn to stand-up comedy? 
I don't know. You're a stand-up comic. You <laughs> yeah, should, I know. You but, should know. <laughs> yeah, I should know. I have my right. own experience. But from your side, wh- why would someone do that? Because to me, it's it's not just like a risky. It's like it's an objectively dangerous job. Because uh, when you look even at the stats, right. like the people who are like make it to the top, a lot of them get more depressed over the years. Mm-hmm. And you th- like people who are still successful today, they're still very open about their depression, mm-hmm. right? So someone like Robin Williams is a great example. Until the end of his life, and he died of basically depression overdose and drug overdose and stuff like mm-hmm. that. The drugs thing we'll get into in a bit. But it seems to me that like if you take the sample of comedians, sample of musicians and actors, it seems like the depression rate is way higher among this category. Jim Carrey is another example, who's still depressed until now. Mm. Uh, Why do you think that correlation exists? I'm not sure. I mean, I I think that one reason why people um, don't find happiness in in success is that when they were unsuccessful or starting out in their career, they thought, once I get up there Mm. and that's it, I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be happy. That's going to do it for me. Mm. But then when when they get there, they realize that we're all just searching for meaning in life. Mm. We're all trying to make sense of why am I here? And when you get there, you're, it's not like suddenly you know, the, the heavens open and the angels sing and wow, you know, now my life is fulfilled. You're still looking for that meaning in life. Mm. And I, I think that people who are very successful are often so driven that they're not focused on their relationships. That's mm. just a, a possibility. I'm not, I've, I haven't done any studies yeah. on that, mm. but it, it kind of makes sense because to, to be successful, you have to be driven. You have to sacrifice a ton of stuff. And you don't have time to build real deep, meaningful relationships with people. So maybe that's why they get to the top and they're, they never... They're alone at the top alone. of the mountain. Yeah. And by the way, you, when you're alone at the top, you're always scared that someone's going to knock you off that mountain. Yeah, because mm. you have so much more to fall down. From right. like at the top, I think. Okay, so mm. I'm curious. Do you find a pattern in, let's say, your patients, especially clients? In, oh, sorry, clients. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I, I keep mixing it up. Patients man. see a doctor. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah not a doctor. Okay, yeah. So he, do you, he does cut them open, but let's not yeah, talk about hey, that. Uh, I do. Cycle. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's anyway. got my secret. Yeah, so, exactly. I'm very curious that, especially in a city like Hong Kong, do you notice recurring patterns with your clients that the issues that they're dealing with has a lot to do with the environment they're in or is this just a general thing that any environment can do? Like, for example, in Hong Kong, what I find is that the stop and smell the roses issue is a big issue where people are so busy, as you said, trying to climb to the top that they forget what was the original objective. Like, for example, uh, a few years ago, even myself, you know, I'm so busy trying to uh, be comedian, be funny and everything. I'm like, wait, I just want to go up there and perform. I just want to have a good time. I've forgotten that. I'm just so busy doing the shows where I'm like, I'm just doing the motion. And do you have a lot of that happening in Hong Kong, that, you know, just going through the motions or basically like, what am I here for? Because you talked about meaning just now. And I think a lot of books talk about that. For example, I subscribe to the Bruce Lee philosophy of like everything's within yourself, stuff like that. But the idea is that your meaning changes over time. For example, let's say 10 years ago, all I cared about from comedy was I get to go on stage and perform. Now, if you're like, hey, can you come to my party and perform? I'm like, no. This is my fee. They're like, well, but you enjoy what you do. I'm like, yes, but I don't do it that way anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's changed as well. And I have to accept that that's my new quote unquote meaning. Do you find there's a, there's a recurring theme of people coming to you after, as, as your client is saying, I have this issue. You're like, okay, I've seen a hundred of this. This is the deal you're dealing with right now, especially because yeah. it's Hong Kong. No. I mean, I've had many hundreds of clients and I've never had two people who were the same. Not mm. even close. I mean, everybody is so unique. But were there like commonalities? I'm saying okay. like in this yes. city, this somehow okay. this city kind of drives you a certain way. I don't think it's a it's a city thing. I think it's a it's a human thing that it's hard to form close relationships 
and not get overwhelmed by them like as in like you know you you date someone and you're you have a distance you're still yourself but you still feel very close it's hard to make yourself vulnerable to people mm. um it's hard to find your your place in society where you you recognize that you're not going to be the top you're not the bottom but you got to be happy with with somewhere in the middle um you know it's finding i always say that there's there's th life is like a three-legged stool you need work meaningful work mm. you need friendships and you need someone to love. Mm -hmm. And that someone to love doesn't have to be a romantic partner, mm -hmm. it can be a child, it can be a parent, it can be a dog, it can be, it can be God even for some people. Mm -hmm. You need meaningful work, you need to feel like I am useful in society, I have a place here. And you need a social life, you need people who are around you who, who you can go and talk to. When you've got those three things, as long as you've got enough money to live, life is okay. You're pretty solid, okay. Mm. So let's, let's use that the three like a stool thing for yeah. comedians right? right let's use that i think that's a really good example good good kind of baseline we could start off with so first of all let's assume every comedian loves basically going on stage and performing yes okay the fact that they'll keep coming back chances are they usually must like it to a certain extent yeah so you have some comedians and whether they're funny or not that's secondary yeah, to, right? to, to explain to you what that means as well in the, our industry so as a booker you see someone who has the potential we call we say they have the bug Right, which means that they're gonna come back. So sometimes you see someone who come to open mic, did it once, got that first big hit. Just it's exactly like drugs, and I'm sure you can explain it even better than I do, because they can come back, and they just want that big laugh again, to the point that like, and there's also like bigger examples of people who have become successful. Again, like Robin Williams, he was accused of stealing material when he was starting. But it's fascinating because when I looked into his life, I'm like, he has an addictive personality. He was addicted to drugs, alcohol, all of these things. But he was also just like any basic base level comedians. He just wants that hit to the point that he stole other people's material, even though he's an absolute genius. And we see that in also younger comedians as well. You come back and we as bookers are like, hey, man, that's this person's material. For us, this is super unethical. You cannot do that. But sometimes I think, again, going back to the denial thing, they're not they're in denial about it. All they want is just that hit. They just want that big laugh. And they're going to do whatever it takes. Yeah, that's true, actually. Because like, there have been comedians that I've confronted. Like, hey, that's material that's stolen. Like, yeah. oh, it's, no, it's not. They don't own it. I'm like, yeah. no, I think they pretty much do. Yeah. That bit's way too clear cut that it's that person. So, yeah. well, you know, they don't only have the minibus. I'm like, no, okay, let me... It doesn't work that way. You know, yeah. you can rephrase it. So, yes, you're correct. They want that hit. And that's an issue, I think, that with comedy, it's highly addictive. Once you get that one or two big laughs, you're like whoa, this is a rush that like no other. Yeah. And you come back and then when you don't get it, that's where the issues start. I mean, I'm noticing like when comedians, when they first start first, uh, first one or two open mics, they expect nothing and they get the laugh. They're like, whoa, this is a bonus. Yeah. But then they come back. They're like, I'm not getting it. Yeah. What's going on? Or I'm not getting enough. Now I want more. Again, just like a drug addict. Yeah. So there's that, that issue. So would you say even with work is that because our line of work, there's a lot of it, basically the response of the audience tells us if our work is enjoyable or not. Very rarely would we be like, I'm having a great time on stage whether you're laughing or not. Right? Mm. It's very unlikely. Would you say it's that volatility in the, our line of work that causes comedians to maybe have a more likely chance of having kind of, you know, uh, depression or basically unhealthy mental issues? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, it's, it's uh, a pretty precarious existence. If you really need that, that laughter and you're not getting it, 
you start to feel, first of all, you're a, a has-been, and then when you bomb the second time, I guess you start feeling like, I'm a never-was. Yeah. Right. You know, I'm, I, a I'm a fraud. Like, fraud. that was a fluke, basically. Right, right. Yeah. Not only am I, uh, am I a fraud, but everybody out there knows that I'm a fraud. The humiliation is intense. Huh. Ah, okay. So, that, mm-hmm. so that's why you have to have the friends around you to be supportive. That comes to the second leg of the stool right. of having like, a social network that is A, friendly, B, you want to look forward to meeting, and C, is maybe supportive as well. Right. And the problem is, you guys are probably most friends with other comedians that's that's and a huge problem <laughs> and supportive uh, i don't think so i mean it's even, not even about that uh, if they're supportive or not it's the fact that you're surrounding yourself by people who are as damaged as you are it's not exactly <laughs> great the funny thing is in comedy shows you will find that whenever a comedian is on stage dying completely you still get laughs from other comedians oh uh, this other is end this is a this very is, common thing yeah, it's, a very it's common. actually it's not even like we're we're not being mean or evil like when he's bombing on stage and I'm laughing in the back, he's not angry. Yeah. Like he, he might be embarrassed because he's bombing, but it's so common in the comedy world that we're laughing at other people's dying that it just become completely normal. <laughs> Like yeah. If you're sitting in, audi- in the audience, you're just an audience member, this person is, is dying and comics are laughing in the back, you'll be like, what the fuck is going on? This is so bad. But for, uh, it's just part of the show now. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, that's a social circle. Yeah, oh, nice. exactly. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so two out of two, yeah. two out of three are, are bad. So I guess the question is not why is it that so many um, comedians have depression or mental mental health issues mm. is why don't more of you have depression yeah. issues yeah. based on these two already yeah. you should be all so, problems you know what it is awful. though because it's, it, it's well it is awful I agree with you but it's also because we are we are like minded so one of the things a lot of comedians bond over is fucked up humor it's like stuff that you can't even say on stage stuff that is can be over the top like racist or homophobic or whatever it is we say it to each other to make each other laugh and there is nothing you can tell me, if you're a close friend to me, there is nothing you can tell me that can offend me. Because as a comedian, I put joke first before mm-hmm. anything else. For example, we have a concept called roast. Are you familiar with that? No. Roast, roast shows... Oh, to make fun of other... To make yeah, fun yeah, of other comedians. Yeah, yeah. Right. And there are obviously famous examples. If you go on Comedy Central, you see like people like Justin Bieber or Donald Trump getting roasted. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, for TV, so it can be a bit exaggerated. Even if they are offended, they might not show it. But among each other as well, we roast each other all the time. Like, I've had family members die this year. And when we were doing the roast a few months ago, I was part of it. And we always ask each other, just for courtesy, hey, is there something you don't want me to talk about? For example, we have a comedian who works in a bank. He doesn't want people to know he works for that particular bank. We're like, fair enough. We're not going to make jokes about your bank. When they ask me, I'm like, nope. If it's funny, I, I will laugh. Even if it's an expense of something that is very sensitive to me. Because also in my head, if it's not funny, I win because you're going to look like a dick. Right? (laughs) (laughs) So either way, I win. If it's funny, I will laugh and that's good enough for me. So this was a long convoluted way to say that comedians stick to each other because we have that mentality of just we just want to laugh. So in some ways, it is a supportive community. Exactly. But in a really fucked up way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so maybe of the the three stools, we have like half a we leg. We have the love. <laughs> right. We have the third leg. Yeah. That's kind of like wobbly already. The screw's yeah. coming loose. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty but wobbly. But I think it's all, I think that's the one thing that you can say that at least the circle of comedians who are the like regular comedians, uh, there's a certain mutual respect slash care, mm. whereas in like we won't push you and smash you in the road in front of a bus. But we will make fun of you until your emotions are crumbled into pieces. Yeah. But that's because we can't physically hurt you. We're just kind of emotionally <laughs> damaging you. Lovely. 
What a nice thing to hear. <laughs> That's such a perfect way to end. Yeah. No, no, we're not ending. We're staying oh, with man. this guy. <laughs> Unless he drops the mic, I'm continuing to talk to him. You guys can check out of the podcast. I'm going to keep talking. Okay, so you're clearly identifying a bunch of problems here. Just from seeing your face and your reactions, you're, you know, you're saying that this is a lot, there's a lot of issues, basically. Well, it's it's a tough line of work you guys have, have chosen, or maybe a tough line of work that's chosen you. That's a great point. That that goes back to a, another thing I wanted to talk about, which is like when you choose the line of work or comedians who like end up being comedians, do you think if they were happy as kids, do you think that or like when they're growing up or they had like more unquote no quote unquote normal childhood, do you think it, are they more likely or less likely to take up a line of work like this? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know, it's That's like a, that would be just me kind of pontificating. Yeah, 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 I mean, okay, it doesn't have to know. be based on like certain studies right. that you read, but just from your not even your experience. But if you have to take a if guess, I had to guess, you yeah, know, maybe maybe when you have a, a a tough childhood, you find ways to deal with it, and humor can be one of the ways to deal with it. And then you become good at it; it protects you against that tough the, the toughness in your childhood. And then you take it into your adulthood and go like, "Wow, this actually works, and people like me for it." Mm. So always stay a kid. Always <laughs> stay a kid. Yeah, I mean, there, there are also co- there is the other just to, to not sound so general or across the board. There are other comedians who are. Have, have had great childhood and great lives and you're still like there is a very famous comedian called Anthony Jasenek and he has had he has had some issues when he was young or whatever but his whole uh, brand is that I am better than you and I'm happy and I am a handsome successful comedian and that's his whole brand and people love him for it mm. and he's one of these guys who was very dark so he makes jokes about like 9-11 and dead babies and stuff like that and he sells out arenas <laughs> he's a huge comedian but there is also that type of comedian who is just like, I'm happy, I'm not like the everyone else. Right. Right? right. Th- that also I find fascinating. It's like, oh, I want to be like that guy, except yes, that I'm right. not. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows whether it's true. Maybe he did have a wonderful childhood. Right. So, maybe he didn't. Yeah, exactly. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. This is what I'm struggling with because the, the people that I surround myself by are people who are like me. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's time to change, Mo. Yeah, well, uh, what, what if you have a comedian coming to you uh, saying like, hey, I'm writing jokes, but I'm not connecting with the audience. Because your line of work is similar in a way that you have to connect with the person in front of mm-hmm. you. We're just connecting with a lot of people at the same time. Mm-hmm. What is a basic advice to connect when, when, when someone works in, in a line of work that you have to connect with people? Unlike, for example, a bank teller, you don't have to connect with anyone. You're very transactional, right? What, what general advice would you give someone to have better connection with their audience? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess... You know, if you're not really aware of what's going on inside of you, then it's going to be hard to connect. It's going to be hard to be real. Mm. And my guess is what what your audience wants to see is people who are being real. Mm. That's just a guess. So I did have one comedian who was really trying hard, but he was very disconnected from some of his feelings. Mm. And I don't think he was terribly successful. Mm. That makes sense. To keep it real. Oh, I didn't know that you saw you saw them before Vivek. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not connected, man. <laughs> I'm all pieces. He also right said he was it. terrible, so I'm looking at you. <laughs> I don't See, this my... is exactly an example of what we do. This is like a very lighthearted joke. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and I, my reaction should be, "Hey, how dare you?" But I'm like, "Ha ha yeah. ha!" Yeah, that's yeah, hilarious. Exactly. <laughs> we have issues, man. Um, okay, did you ever watch that? Like growing up, were you a fan of stand-up comedy? Uh, there's a period when I was a young adult that I watched it a lot. Mm. Uh, who did you like? Here. 
I have no idea any of the names. I mean, it's so many years ago. Listen, mm. I'm 60, 61. Yeah. And this was probably, you know, 35 years ago. Oh, okay, okay, um, okay yeah. So probably, just, probably those comedians are dead now anyway. <laughs> <laughs> or they died on stage. I that could be too. So, okay. But I, I, I did used to like sit in the front row and wear like funny clothes so that I get heckled. Oh, really? Like, oh, nice. So you, in a way, you also wanted attention. No, I just like to see them. See what they do? Kind of like be mean to me. Oh, it's kind of fun. <laughs> okay, like a little bit of abuse. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Okay, actually, this is a great point because it's essentially we're all doing stand-up to get attention because we don't get enough attention off stage. Mm-hmm. And this is also something if you talk to any comedian, maybe eight out of ten are going to tell you the same thing. I just want, because in that moment, the rules are set that I am the only one who making every call in this room. If you talk, security is allowed to kick you out. I, if I talk to you, you have to respond to me. It's all about me, 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 me. Mm-hmm. As in your life, are the people like this who are more like self-centered or self-absorbed? Where does that come from? Oh, my goodness. You know, I mean, don't we all want to be the center of attention in some way? Like, right, but that, not, I mean, everyone t- right, not everyone decided to like take I mean, a microphone we, and scream at people. We, but we all want to feel important to other people. Yeah. yeah. Right? And sometimes people do that through like what I do. I mean, that's, that's my driving force. There you go. Is yeah. to matter to my clients that if they care, that, like if I make a difference in their lives, even if they're not getting better, but, they're, but they feel better temporarily by, by me listening to them, that gives meaning to my life. So maybe what gives meaning to your life and to mm. other comedians is to, be, to stand up there and have everybody looking at you. Suddenly mm. you're important. Okay. For me, I feel I want to be important to one person at a time. But does that mean that we all fear unimportant until we, f- we do something like this? Or is it people who are not you or me who are, have felt important all of their lives? You don't need to do jobs like this. Hmm. I think we all need to feel important to other people because if you're, if you're not, if you don't matter to anyone else, mm. what's, what's the point of life? I feel like, okay, so someone who maybe has felt important, let's say to their parents or their loved ones all of their lives, mm-hmm. they can go up and work in a bank. Yeah, you know what perhaps. I mean? Like, I don't need to matter to a stranger in order to get validation, while you want that validation from a stranger. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not strangers after they come to my, my office for one or yeah, two sure, sessions. Yeah, sure, but essentially, you're still seeking that because mm-hmm. that, that, that dynamic is set up that they are needing your help, but in a lot of ways, you also need them. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? That's very true. I need my clients. That's very interesting, actually, because that makes that gives us more in common, a comedian and a yeah. therapist. The more I hear, the more I'm like, wait a second, we're therapists. Exactly. <laughs> it's actually funny because, yeah, it's funny because comedians have a very hacky joke in a way when they go on stage and say, oh, this is my free therapy session because I can't afford therapy. It's a very, very common joke. You hear it from open micers all the time. But in a funny way, I'm discovering today for the first time that actually, no, the, the, uh, I am the therapist in a way as for the audience. Same for you, because now you are, you are getting validation from them. Mm-hmm. So in that scenario, are you the comedian or the audience? <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes I do tell a few jokes to certain clients who, who need some humor at the end of a session. I'll tell them a joke or two. <laughs> I was reading something when I first started. Like, it was like one of these very basic books about like, the stand-up comedy. And I, something that stuck with me over the years is that the, it said that 90% or 85% of the audience's opinion on you is formed before you open your mouth on stage. Oh my. Yeah, so basically, yeah, it says like something like, they they judge you immediately, and maybe this is something you can confirm, or maybe you don't know, but it says it judges you on your appearance, on how you look, 
uh, on how you're dressed, on how you hold the microphone. And the last 15% is your first 30 seconds of your act. Hmm. Hmm. What do you think of that? Like, is that something that is quite common that a general public would judge someone immediately based on very superficial things? Um, yes and no. So we're all judging everyone else. The moment you, you see someone, you start forming an opinion. The question mm. is, is that opinion firm, mm. unchangeable, or does it change? Now, the fact is, I think it changes all the time. Yeah. You know, they may think, wow, this guy looks great. And then you open your mouth and you say something stupid and their opinion of you goes down. Right. And vice versa. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea that we're not judgmental, we don't make any, any, any kind of, we have no opinion of someone for a while, that's just not true constantly getting information about people and and kind of making preliminary judgments about them okay okay wow okay so, i want to get i think we're yeah we're kind of running be, out yeah. of time i want to get into something but we'll save it for the patreon because uh, another common thread here in hong kong and worldwide in our industry is drug abuse mm -hmm. it's so common that it's actually i'm i'm fascinated by it in the sense that like people seem because you can't stay on stage forever and people get off stage and they do drugs to get that same hit or the same dopamine. Or I don't even know if that's right, hormone, dopamine, or yeah. serotonin, whatever it is. Uh, they they want to do that, but it's there is certain comedians, uh, historically, who have only been good when they were on drugs. Hmm. They started good, and then something happened when they only got found that when they were just on drugs and then they started quit, like they quit or they tried to stop and they died. Like sometimes literally died, just died of depression or whatever, but sometimes mm. just died on stage. Mm. And there's a famous comedian, uh, Jem Jeffries, who's an uh, Australian comedian, who is famous for being drunk on stage, visibly drunk, and he's mm. drinking on stage. Same for Doug Stanhope, another American famous comedian, drunk on stage all the time. And you see him sober, you're like, ah, that's not, ah, I don't like you very much. Not that sometimes funny. he's making the same points. Mm. But you're just not accepting it. Hmm. Uh, so we'll get a little bit into the alcohol and drug abuse in the comedy world, but on the Patreon. Tim, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, just one last thing. Uh, guys, if you're enjoying this, please share it with a friend. Uh, you know, Give us a five-star rating on uh, Apple, on where on Spotify, and on uh, Podbean. Podbean, yeah. Uh, Tim, thanks for your time so much. How do people find you? Uh, just if you have anything uh, to, to plug since you're in Hong Kong. Most of our audience are in Hong Kong. Uh, the floor is yours. Uh, well, just my web page. If you just type in uh, Hoffman Counseling Hong Kong, you'll get me. HoffmanCounseling.hk. Uh, I don't think it's .hk. Oh, no, okay. it's, it's, uh, I have it right here. It's Hoffman-Counseling.com. Right, so you know my web page better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's how good he is. He's like, uh, I don't know where to find myself. Uh, actually, I will ask you a question, and we can totally cut that if you want. Uh, the, the, some of the people who worked with you before, they told me that you work on a sliding scale. That's right. Uh, are you okay to talk about this? Again, this is on record, yeah, like sure. we can cut it. So, because that also, to me, was, was quite cool, that you f the fact that you kind of cater your, your service to, uh, to people's budget. Can you explain that a little bit? Right, so, I mean, traditionally, um, therapists charge uh, just a, a standard fee, mm. and, uh, you know, it's in Hong Kong, anything from, like, around, I don't know, 1,200 up to 2,300, 2,400. Mm. Um, for, for a 45 to 50 minute session. Which can be quite expensive for oh, a lot yeah. of people. Right, yeah, right. So I, I think that people should be able to afford therapy whether or not they're rich. Um, and so I charge, I overcharge on the high end. So I charge 2,500 for, for the people who are, who are wealthy and people who are not wealthy. I mean, it just goes all the way down mm. to 500 for people who are really struggling. 
and even like one or two people who've started and lost their jobs or whatever, I, mm. I help them out for free or for a small fee. Okay, just to uh, clarify, all this fancy furniture you're seeing around here, <laughs> this is all on loan, okay? <laughs> this okay. Is, I do not own any of these things. I want you to know my, my, my asset management level is very poor. <laughs> Should I email you? Please consider me. He owns <laughs> this house. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a huge house. Yeah, it's Man, gigantic. Oh, oh there, there's two more floors upstairs. <laughs> right, right. Oh, you and saw and the helpers coming in, right? And uh, the garden is gorgeous. And the garden is gorgeous. <laughs> and the pool? swimming pool? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I never, wow. He never even invited me to the pool by the way i don't even know if i own the swimming pool <laughs> i just look at them like that's, that's how mine? big your property is yeah i can't get to it <laughs> too far ah 10 steps I can this do. is actually really nice of you and i'm glad you're actually okay with to share it on, on on record as well because that means that if someone does need help they can get in touch with you and they can figure something out uh, with their budget and you're willing to help people obviously like the city that it can be very hectic very stressful for a lot of people aside from comedians whatever a lot of people here working in like finance or like trading it's a lot of high stress jobs People also, this is the most overworked city in the world, mm -hmm. according to one study I read. So I'm <laughs> not sure how true it is, but it's a very overworked city, right? Would you agree? Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. So because of that, a lot of people would might need help, and they might think, just like myself thought before you said that, is that therapy is just expensive. Mm -hmm. Like even if you make decent amount of money, you can't spend two thousand five hundred like once a week that's already like a big chunk of your income so the fact that you make yourself accessible to people so they can get help is very very nice of you so thank you so much for doing that and you guys if you need help get in touch with Tim or get in touch uh, seek therapy basically thanks Tim you're welcome <laughs> <laughs>